Welcome to episode number seven of the Dan Time Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Dan McArdle. Hey, thanks for checking out the show. Whether this is your first listen or you've been here all along, I appreciate you making Dan Time a part of your podcast rotation. So how'd your team do last weekend? Are you, who are you pulling for? Are you playing fantasy football? Are you 3-0? and Or maybe, like me, you're 0-3? Look, it's an exciting time of the year for sports fans, whether you're celebrating, you're on the edge of your seat, or you're pulling your hair out and you're wondering, what is going on? (laughs) I brought on today's guest with football season in mind. Ladies and gentlemen, Vic Penn joins Dan time today, and he's got a Dan story to tell. Vic played opposite Peyton Manning, opposite Drew Brees. He was a redshirt freshman quarterback at the University of South Carolina, during the 1997 season. He then transferred to junior college and to the University of Central Florida, where he would set passing records and cement his legacy. This is a guy who knows what it's like to compete head-to-head with the best of the best. He has thrived in hostile environments. He's been the guy who was too small, yet still figured out how to study defenses and keep his teams in games until time expired. He's a student of the game and... Vic knows what it's like on the field and in life to get back up when you get knocked down. As is the case in life, things didn't always go perfectly for Vic. You'll hear in this conversation, he's still a guy who knows how to put it all in perspective. And he knows what it's all about. It's about relationships. Today, Vic is thankful for the various stops that he made, whether he wanted to be there or not, because now he's got a rich network of friends. In the 1999 season, Vic Penn was among the best quarterbacks in all of Division I football. Vic finished 6th in the nation in total plays in 1999 and 10th in pass attempts. Vic and I became friends about 11 years ago. When I met him, he had the presence of a guy who had been places and faced challenges. Well, I'm excited to bring this conversation to you today. So sit back, buckle up, enjoy the ride. If you remember these days, take a trip down memory lane, and it is my pleasure to bring to you guys Vic Penn. Vic, how is it going, man? I am I'm so glad to have you here. I understand that you've got a very unique Dan story to tell. Absolutely. Um, Dan, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure, and I'm honored. Um, my Dan Marino story is I grew up in Miami, Florida, and of course, I was a quarterback, and I did play quarterback till high school, but... I grew up watching Dan Marino play for the Dolphins, and I emulated him outside when I'm playing with the kids in the street of Miami. And Dan Marino was always known for having a quick release. And when I copied his style of play, I, too, uh, ended up being known for having a quick release. And I really didn't know why I had a quick release or why Dan had a quick release. It was... Not until my little brother was at a karate lesson where I kind of put two and two together. And the karate instructor came up to me and he said, look, the karate punch is thrown from the shoulder. And in order to throw the karate punch from the shoulder, you have to, as a right-hand punch, you have to step to the left and throw the punch from the shoulder. Because if you step towards your opponent or towards your receiver, if you're playing quarterback, you can't really throw it from your shoulder and step forward. So the quarterback quick release was a step to the left 
and if you watch Marino highlights, you'll see him. He's, he doesn't step towards the receiver. He steps to his left, rotates his hips, and throws the ball from his shoulder just about nine out of ten times. And that's how the quick release is it's very similar to the karate punch. When I played high school football in Miami at Miami Senior High, it was time for me to be recruited by the colleges. And my dad and I had to separate ourselves from every regular highlight tape. So we made a highlight tape called the quick release. And in that highlight tape, I compared myself to Marino and showed some Marino highlights and then showed some of my highlights that were the step to the left and throw from the shoulder, which is which is how you develop the quick release. But you, you can't step towards the receiver and towards you know front and throw from the shoulder. You have to come over top like a traditional quarterback would, would come over the top as he's stepping towards the receiver. So it was the karate, karate punch motion. It's the step to the left and the throw from the shoulder, which how the quick release was really demonstrated to me. And we sent that video to every Division I college in the United States of America. And thankfully, I received uh, a few scholarship offers before selecting to uh, accept the, uh, take the scholarship from University of South Carolina Gamecocks. And that's how I got my, my scholarship to Division I football, is through comparing myself to Dan Marino. What a great story. Did you, did you get a chance to see... Marino play live. Did you go to any ball games as a? I went to just about every home game when the Dolphins were playing. My dad was childhood friends with Stuart Weinstein, who was head of security for the Dolphins. I think he still is head of security for the Dolphins. But back in the Shula years, uh, in the Marino years, he always had tickets for us. Uh, we sat in the club seating, so I I saw Dan play many, 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 many times, and he was definitely my favorite player. Sorry he never won a Super Bowl, but uh, he didn't really always have the team around him. But he threw, he threw the ball like nobody I've ever seen to this day. Well, he's obviously one of my favorite quarterbacks. And, you know, some of those seasons, even late in his career, he was so competitive. But um, his defense uh, didn't always hold leads for him. And some other things out of his control, but still an all-time legend. Absolutely. He never had a running game either. <laughs> right. Now, growing up, I heard that you played a lot of baseball through all your childhood years, early teenage years. It really wasn't until you hit high school that you tried out for organized football, and that was the first time that you played. That's true. My dad wouldn't let me play organized football until I got to high school. So I primarily played baseball, and I recommend this to to the quarterbacks if I train them these days. I always recommend at a young age that they play the position of catcher. Because a catcher, one, will toughen you up and because it's, it's a tough position and you're involved every play. If, if you're planning on playing quarterback, I always recommend a year or two of catcher. Now, I primarily played shortstop, but I did spend a couple years playing catcher. And catcher has that similar quick release style. When the runner's stealing second, that catcher has to pop up and throw from his shoulder. And, he, and the only way he can do that, if you watch him, is the, is the karate motion. It's the step to the left, and it's the throw the runner out at second. So I did play baseball my, my entire childhood, um, primarily with shortstop, but I did pitch a little and I played catcher a little. And I think that toughened me up to play quarterback, the catcher position. And I'm thankful I did that, but I didn't play high school, didn't play uh, organized football until high school. 
my dad wouldn't let me. He just said, and there were other kids that were playing, and you know, a lot of them got hurt. A lot of them tore their knees at young ages. Some of them, you know, broke their bones, uh, you know, and and were were injured severely at a young age. So I'm I'm very thankful that he held me out of football until high school. And it was um, wasn't until high school where I I finally played uh, the quarterback position at uh, in a league uh, in an organized setting. And I mean Miami Dade County. This is not just any any district. This is a hotbed of talent. I think your dad had some legitimate concerns about <laughs> absolutely about you playing, but you you got right into the lion's den and probably some great exposure. Uh, looking ahead to your college career and some offers that you would receive, your high school experience. I mean, I, I know a lot of players remember exact plays and uh, the whole narrative of entire games. Do all, all your high school games still stand out to you really vividly? Some of them do. I, I played, uh, I went to the local high school at first, Southwest Miami High, and I played JV as a freshman, and then I started varsity as a sophomore and played the whole season there, and we got our butts whipped. I think we won one game, and it was watching and reading the newspaper and, and seeing the news every every Saturday or Friday night. Miami High had a quarterback by the name of Wilkie Perez, and he was getting all the, the hype, and I said, I need to get on that guy's level. So after my – and he ended up signing a scholarship to, the, to West Virginia University. I was still coming out of 10th grade, about to be into the 11th grade, so – Middle 10th grade, before spring practice, I transferred over to Miami High to play football, which was a scary, scary process because I didn't have my childhood friends there any longer. It was primarily Hispanic and African-American. I think I was the only white guy, if you will, in that school. And I changed my mind a couple different times, and I ended up saying to my dad, no, I got to go. And this was before the transfer uh, transfer portal. So we had to rent an apartment in Miami High's address so that I could have a legal address to use to be able to make the transfer. So the, the great dad that my dad was, he actually went out and got an apartment there in Miami Heights district, and we were able to use that address. Of course, the other school hated it because I had to play them twice the next two years. But before spring practice of my 10th grade year, I transferred to Miami High made a lot of great friends, played the spring game there and spring practice at Miami High, and then played two more years out at Miami High. And my senior year, we went 10-0. and We were number one ranked in the state and number 11, in, excuse me, number nine in the nation by USA Today. And we were blowing everybody out. And we lost to Miami Killian, who had the number one rated defense in the state of Florida at the time in the first round of the playoffs. We had Cedric Irvin, our running back, who ended up playing for Michigan State and the Detroit Lions. And we drove the length of the field under two minutes on our final possession. We were down by six. Excuse me, we were down by five. A touchdown would have won the game without the extra point. We drove to their one-yard line under two minutes in our two-minute drill. And they stopped said four times in a row from the one-yard line. Killian's D had a goal-line stand stopped us four times in a row and that is one of the toughest losses I've ever experienced as an athlete period because we drove the length of the field under two minutes we were prime set and ready to take the win we gave it to said four times and they had a tremendous goal line stand they stopped us four plays in a row from the one and we lost 
and um, and the rest is history. But that game stands out. I'll never forget it. I still have the VHS tape that I watch it from time <laughs> to time. Hoping said would get in there at one time, but he just he just falls just a hair short. And said went on to play for Michigan State, became one of their all-time leading running backs, and then played for the Detroit Lions. He went on to coach with Nick Saban because Saban was the coach of Michigan State then at Alabama. He was a key coach in um, in their undefeated years. He was a running backs coach. So um, that Miami Killing game, the first round of the playoffs, four stops from the one, something I'll never forget. Do you think that some of those tough losses, almost inexplicable losses sometimes, where you just replay it over and over, do you think that at a young age that was you were being primed to deal with situations when you're playing in the SEC for an SEC school and then later for an independent and almost pulling off an upset and not quite getting there. But do you think those early experiences helped you handle some of the games that you just couldn't? Uh, no. It never got any easier. <laughs> never got any easier. I had some <laughs> tough losses in college, um, Georgia Tech, Georgia Auburn, where we were neck and neck to the final minute, final seconds, some of those games. And they're all tough, but I wouldn't change a thing. You know, everything happens for a reason. And you look back and sure, you would have liked to won some of those games. But even though they were close losses, it still has an impact. And, you know, football in general, you know, has a way to develop discipline and character and integrity and things like that. So I'm thankful for the way it turned out. Now, I really wanted to play for Florida State coming out of high school. I could have used those extra three or four games in the playoffs to maybe solidify that scholarship to Florida State because I was they were hot on me. But we lost first round. I ended up going to South Carolina, but I had some great coaching there. Uh, John Reeves was my quarterback coach, and Coach Reeves held the NCAA passing yardage record as a Florida Gator quarterback in the early 70s for some 30 years before Danny Werfel, another Gator, ended up beating him. And I had tremendous coaching from Coach Reeves there as my quarterback coach. And then when I went to UCF, I ended up having Mike Kruzak, a former Pittsburgh Steeler, Terry Bradshaw's backup uh, as my quarterback coach for two years and head coach at UCF. So between the two, I really got some phenomenal coaching at the quarterback position. And as I watch quarterbacks today, sometimes I'm just thinking, man, these guys just don't know what they're doing at times because... It wasn't really until Coach Kruzak and Coach Reeves where I really learned the game of quarterback and how to look at a defense and kind of eliminate receivers based on what they were going to do post-snap of the football. I was able to see, and by game film watching, I was able to know what defense they were going to be in by a couple of key indicators that would give it away every time. They could look like they were in cover two, but number 42 on the defense would give it away when he was a half a yard to the right or a half a yard to the left meant they were going to drop into a cover three. So even though they were showing one defense, I was able to get out audible, change the play at the line of scrimmage into a play that would successfully have a chance to beat the defense they were going to drop into. So I learned the the quarterback position in a whole different light from these guys. And for that, I'm very thankful that it ended up the way that it ended up because I really learned the quarterback position very well. Now, at South Carolina, when you sign with the Gamecocks, you're not sure when you're going to be the starting quarterback. At first, you're, are you third on the depth chart? Right. I was redshirted my freshman year, but I was still traveled with the teams as a third-string quarterback. Would be able to play in an emergency 
but I redshirted my first year as a freshman. So Peyton Manning's final season, final home game, yes. uh, you're the backup. Just take me through, let's just say that morning, you're waking up in the team hotel. You're, I guess you always prepare as if you're going to come into the game, but what's it like when you're in Knoxville and you guys, are, you know that you're about to be, whether on the field or on the sideline, there's going to be 100 plus thousand people there. Right. Are you ready to to be the starter or are you just, you know? Yes, to... <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. And, and let me tell you why. Um, it was Peyton Manning's final home game. At the time, they had a record crowd, 110,000 people. And my job as the backup was to signal the plays into our starter, Anthony Wright. And I was very involved in the game as the as it's getting the plays down from our offensive coordinator to the headphones and then signaling them in to Anthony. But there was no way I was going to play in this game. Anthony was a phenomenal athlete, phenomenal player. I think he played 11 years in the NFL after that. Made some starts for the Cowboys and, and Baltimore Ravens. But I didn't have my ankles taped because I was going to get them taped at halftime because I knew the only time I was going to play was either if we were blowing them out or more likely because of Peyton Manning, them blowing us out. And I had only played in mop-up duty up until that point. I was a redshirt freshman. And so I'm standing there. It was pouring rain, too. It was another element that I had to deal with because it was just a rainy day, Peyton's final home game. And the end of the first to the very beginning of the second quarter, Anthony tears about every ligament in his knee and is out for the season. So I had to go in without my ankles taped. And it's not a, I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but you asked the question if I was prepared. I was prepared mentally and ready, but I, I remember not having my ankles taped and because I just wasn't going to play until, until the fourth quarter. So I went out there in the first half, you know, played the second quarter. They ended up beating us 22 to seven, but I was able to throw a touchdown pass in the corner of the end zone. But that was my first touchdown pass, happened to come against Peyton Manning's final home game which is something that I'll always remember in, in Knoxville, in Neyland Stadium. And I did get my ankles taped at, at halftime. <laughs> and, you know, it's not some small footnote that you avoided the shutout. I mean, that score could have been 22 nothing in the annals of history. And then you turn around and uh, start against, is it Florida next? It was the, it was the defending national champion, Florida Gators, because they had won it in 96. And now Tennessee... Tennessee goes on to win the SEC title that year, and then the next year, I think, they won the national championship. That's correct. When T. Martin came in after Peyton, and then they won it the following year, my first ever start was back home at Williams-Brice Stadium in South Carolina against the defending national champion, Spurrier-led Florida Gators. And that was a close one up until the fourth quarter. It was 14-14. to I had thrown a touchdown pass, and I was having a pretty darn good game. And... It was 14 to 14, start of the fourth. They ended up beating us, I think, 42 to 21 because Fred Taylor, their running back, ran for 200 plus yards in the fourth quarter alone. And I ended up throwing a second touchdown pass in the fourth, but we lost, I think, 42 to 21 or something like that. And it was a great game, great experience. Took a lot of hits in both games, you know, playing against those two powerhouse SEC schools as a, as a redshirt freshman was something I'll never forget a lot of fun but I got beat up and bruised pretty badly but I was a little guy I mean I was only 6'1 175 at the time which is tremendously small for a quarterback at the SEC but I then went on to play against Clemson after that and they beat us also but it was a good game 
made a lot of great plays, had some unfortunate turnovers that cost us. But um, at the conclusion of that season, I was named the 1997 All-SEC Freshman Quarterback of the Year, which at the time I really didn't think too much of. But looking back on it, it's, it was an honor that not a lot of players, not a lot of quarterbacks are able to uh, obtain. And, and I look back and I'm very thankful for it and the way that it turned out. It was a great experience in South Carolina. Love the Gamecocks to death to this day. Their fan base is tremendous. I mean, they sold out every game, you know, years in advance. And that Clemson-South Carolina game is rivalry week. It's a great rivalry, and it's on TV, ESPN, usually every uh, – it was a night game. And great game. Um, you can still find it on YouTube and memories of, that I always remember. Oh, and I also want to go back. Uh, this is kind of an interesting statistic from the Tennessee game. Now, Peyton – Probably in the second half, wasn't throwing the ball a lot compared to the first half, but she actually had more completions than Peyton Manning in that game. Yeah, I, I, I remember there was an article in the Atlanta paper that my aunt sent me because they were living in Atlanta at the time that said something like, it wasn't Peyton Manning, it wasn't Anthony Wright, it was Vic Penn who stole the show or something, something of that nature. Yeah, you had more completions and a, and a better completion percentage. Well, that, that I didn't know. I appreciate you telling me that. But again, it was raining. Was right, and he did play the whole game because it was close. It was like sixteen to zero, and then I think they kicked two more field goals, made it twenty-two later in the game. But it was a tight game. I think most of the game it was nine to nothing, Tennessee, and then I threw the touchdown in the fourth quarter, made it twenty-two to seven. I went nine for sixteen, one hundred and ten yards. I think is accurate. Nine for sixteen, one hundred and ten yards. They didn't let me throw as often as I would have liked. Again, it was raining. I was new. I was just a redshirt freshman. I had just some mop-up experience. I had won the spring game the year before, South Carolina spring game, against Anthony um, when they split up the teams and have our spring game. And I was playing well, but they, they put me in a lot of third and long situations and then tried to throw. Run the ball in first, run the ball in second. Next thing I know, it's third and twelve. And I got to come up with a play. And that was difficult, but it was great experience and it toughened me up. And again, I was named all SEC freshman quarterback, which if you remember Jesse Palmer for the Gators, he was another freshman that year that came in and played quite a bit. So he's my claim to fame because he went on, you know, he's ESPN, The Bachelor and did all these these shows after that. But um, Jesse Palmer was my competition for the SEC and and I was able to, to get the award and just great memories. Well, it's well-earned, and uh, those of you listening who are around our age and you remember Vic Penn, do yourself a favor. Go back on YouTube. Relive some of these these old uh, SEC matchups that Vic was involved in. If you're a young guy and you want to see, uh, Vic, I was going to mention this, just your your footwork, do you think that your size at that time actually helped you scramble and evade would-be tacklers? I was always a student of the game and I was always very fast, even as a kid, you know, when playing baseball, if I got to first base, I was on third because I was stealing second, stealing third. I was always very fast, but I was always paid attention to mechanics. And I always knew that mechanics were going to help my accuracy. So being small, a 6'1", 175, the first thing I would tell them is that it doesn't bother me. I have more room on the airplane flights. I would look around and I'd see all these guys and they're crammed up in their seats and they've got no room. And I'm sitting there relaxed, you know, kicking, kicking back. And so I, so that, that was a plus. But when I went to UCF, I had to quote unquote, fill the shoes of Dante Culpepper, who was UCF's quarterback for four years. 
and he had just got drafted by the Minnesota Vikings, and I was the very next quarterback to take his place at UCF. I had a stint in Garden City, Kansas, because when you transferred back then, D1 to D1, you had to sit out a year. I don't think that's the rule anymore, but so I went to a, I went to a junior college after South Carolina and played a season in Garden City, Kansas Junior College, the Bronx Busters, and that was tough. That was tough, playing in front of 100,000 people in the SEC on television to going out to Kansas, playing in front of, you know, 100 people who were all parents and in a high school field at nighttime. Very difficult to get up for those games. But we went 9-3, and three, won our bowl game, and uh, and great experience. I still made great friends and uh, great coaches out there also, and it was a tremendous experience. And I give it to Coach Jim Gush, who actually found me. He said... You know, I was going to go transfer to, to another Division One school, and he said, why don't you come out here, play for a year in junior college, you get to take your five recruiting trips, get re-recruited again, just like if you're coming out of high school. This way, you don't have to sit out a year, and you get to play a year. So he contacted me, and he was the only one to contact me, and I'm still great friends with Coach Gush today, and that's how I ended up signing a scholarship to UCF coming out of Garden City, Kansas for a year junior college. I could see where you wanted to get back to a uh, prime time, high exposure. Well, I guess they didn't call them Power Five schools at that time, but absolutely, you know, wanted to get back into that environment. Yeah, Vic, you must have seen that schedule. I don't know how many years in advance the schedules were released back then, but Purdue, Florida, Georgia Tech, Georgia. I mean, bang, bang, bang. Did you just look at that and eyes? That's what sold me, yes. <laughs> Wide open, like, I got to get it. I got to be a part of that. Well, being out in Kansas at that young of an age and getting a call from UCF, at first I wanted to come back to my neck of the woods. And I'm from Miami. They play in Orlando. And I had a lot of friends that were going to UCF at the time. And I knew that they didn't have a quarterback that hadn't played other than Culpepper there. And I knew that it was going to be top news of who was going to replace Culpepper at UCF. So when they called me up, Coach Scott Fountain was the first one to call me, and they told me Purdue, it was against Drew Brees, Florida, Georgia Tech, and then Georgia. Then we had some home games that were Louisiana Tech and good teams. But then we had Auburn, you know, midseason, and Bowling Green, and, and some real, I think the schedule, the first four games were rated at the time the toughest in the nation. All four teams were ranked, Purdue, Florida, Georgia Tech, and Georgia. And we lost all four, but... We almost beat Georgia. We lost 24 to 23. But what a great experience it was. And to be able to learn under Mike Kruzak, who was Terry Bradshaw's backup as a Steeler, has two Super Bowl rings, to learn the quarterback position from him changed the way I played quarterback completely. We didn't, we didn't have the freedom to audible. We were required to audible because he said to me, Vic, look, I can only be right a certain amount of times when I call plays. There's going to be times where you come up to the line of scrimmage and I've called a play, and they come out in the defense that's going to stop that play. I need you to be able to recognize that, get out of that play, and get into a play that has a chance of being successful. So we were required to audible based on what we saw pre-snap um, at the line of scrimmage. And that was just a completely different way to play the game. I was able to eliminate receiver number one, receiver number two, because the traditional way of teaching quarterbacks is to drop back, look at number one, look at number two, look at number three. If he's not there, come down to four, right? And he taught us, look, eliminate one and two based off, we knew they were going to be covered pre-snap because they were dropping into a, a zone or a, a specific defense that was going to have number one and two covered. 
and hit your fifth step and come right to number three because number three is the one that's going to be open. So we were, and Marino was like that too, old Dan. He was able to eliminate receivers at the line of scrimmage based off what he knew the coverage was going to indicate and what they were going to drop into. So that helped with accuracy because when you drop back and you hit your fifth step and you're not worried about one and two because you know they're going to be covered and you're able to, in one fluid motion, hit your step, come up, and throw right to number three in one fluid motion. It was all about rhythm. Your accuracy is much better when you know what you're doing. And I compare it to a shortstop playing baseball. The shortstop's there, and he knows that there's no runners on. There's one out. If a ground ball gets hit to him, he's going to field it, take a hop, step, and a jump, and throw it over to first. And 10 times out of 10, that ball gets hit to him. He fields it. He takes his nice hop, step, and a jump. He's a nice rhythm, nice fluid motion. And he throws a strike right over to first base. You never see him stop and wonder and, and look and move his feet to the right and then try to throw to first. It's that one fluid consecutive motion that's able to be accurate to that throw at first because he knows what he's going to do before that ball is hit. He knows there's no outs. He knows that there's nobody on base. If a ground ball is hit to me, I'm throwing right to first. And sure enough, in the quarterbacks, the same way. So when you eliminate receiver one and two, you hit your fifth step in a nice one fluid motion or able to come to number three or four because you know that one or two are going to be covered. The mind and the, the smarts of the quarterback and the preparation of the quarterback helps with accuracy along with the fundamentals, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And Krusek, he saw something in you. I, I read this in the Orlando Sentinel. I think it was before the start of the 99 season. Uh, quote, Vic's already been in battle, speaking of your year at South Carolina. He already knows how to prepare for big opponents. So he, he saw something that he liked in you and probably knew that you were going to fit in well with their system. And I think following in the footsteps of Culpepper, you probably had the benefit of not being around him and not shadowing him, but just kind of coming in and, and being aware of him, but not having some in, intimidation factor. Right. Well, first of all, he was 6'4", 260. I was 6'1", 175. <laughs> so there was quite a big difference there. But I've met him a couple of times and spoken with him a few times. But like you said, he was drafted and on to Minnesota by the time I ended up at UCF. So he wasn't there on campus, you know, as an intimidation factor. So you're exactly right. He was gone. I came in. I wasn't behind him at UCF for two years. I came in from another school. So um, you're exactly right. Um, but I still had to answer all the questions. And everybody, even after we played Purdue, our first home game, our first game of the season against Drew Brees, the questions were, you know, were you thinking about Culpepper? Were you, you know, Culpepper this, Culpepper that? And I remember saying, listen, Dante's gone. He's never going to be here again. Y'all need to move on. But still an honor to have to have followed such a just a great athlete and a great player. And he had a great NFL career also. Several Pro Bowls. Got to play with Randy Moss and Chris Carter there at Minnesota. And he would always call me, um, you know, throughout the season and give me some words of encouragement and, and tell me I was playing well and, and doing things like that. And um, he was a very strong supporter. But, yeah, to answer your question, he wasn't there. I wasn't there as a his backup for, for four years or two years. I came in from a different school, so he wasn't there on top of me uh, when I got to UCF. Well, that's a, a really nice side note, though, that he actually is still keeping up, following up with the Golden Knights and who their quarterback is, and he's reaching out to you. I mean, I, I know that goes on a little bit nowadays, but you figure some guys are there off to the NFL, and 
Right. Well, our starting receiver, Kenny Clark, is his first cousin. When I played at UCL, our starting uh, receiver, the Z position, was Kenny Clark, and he was Dante's first cousin from Ocala, Vanguard, in Florida. So he still had ties, but he's still a big supporter even to these days uh, of UCF football. He still gives back. He's still part of the Letterman's Club and, and things of that nature. So Dante's just a great guy. He's a tremendous athlete, tremendous size, gift, and ability. He runs... You know, I think back then, you know, a 4-5, at his size. Uh, he looks like a defensive end playing the quarterback position. So they asked me how I was going to fill his shoes because he was so much bigger than me. I said, I have to let my toenails grow. <laughs> he, he triples me in size. Now, I might jump around a little bit in this 1999 season, but before I forget, you set a record that year that stood for close to 25 years, I think, until Plumlee yes. broke the uh, single-game rushing record. You ran for 122 yards versus uh, Middle Tennessee State. Yep, that was, at the time, I didn't know, all right? So Coach Cruz saw a hole in their defense, and he called some quarterback draws in that game. And I broke one for, like, 55 and I in the first quarter or second quarter, and then the second half I broke another one for 50-some-odd yards, and then I had some other scrambles in there. And it totaled 122. And I remember being on the plane going home. It was at Middle Tennessee State on turf. And Coach Cruz came back to me while I was on the plane in flight. And he showed me the stat that rushed for 122 yards. And, at the, and I was the first quarterback in UCF history to ever rush for over 100 yards in the game, uh, 122. Dante only had 98. And so I was the first UCF quarterback to rush for over 100 yards. And then I held the record for 122 yards for, like you said, 25 some odd years until last season. Plumlee broke the record. I think he hit 176. You know, it was it was fun because every year, every time a quarterback got close and there were a couple that got close, 121, you know, 120, 117. I would always get text messages from my friends. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And they'd always fall short. This time I'm sitting there on Saturday. I forget what I was doing. But I got a text message from my buddy Chris Askew, who was our long snapper at UCF at the time. And he said, Plumlee's got 156 in the first half. I said, wow, it's over. And it was 20-some-odd years. And it was a great uh, record. And always remember it. But um, that son of a gun beat me. And I think he ended up with 176. And uh, tremendous athlete, though great runner and you know, I think he's hurt right now he's not playing this year he played the first couple games but got hurt but the record did get beaten last season but I did have it for for 20 some odd years and speaking of all-time records with uh, Central Florida and this is folks you got to remember that the 2000 season which we'll get to the last six games of the year he didn't play due to entry right but Vic you're number nine on the all-time passing list for the Golden Knights and if you fill out that whole 2000 season, if you're, say, you're there 98, I mean, my gosh, you're probably in the top five. Well, I appreciate that. And you're right. I only played a season and, and a half at UCF um, while the other quarterbacks were playing three, four years. But because of Kruzak and because of the coaching in that 1999 year, I was able to finish 12th in the nation in total offense and we had that schedule Purdue Florida Georgia Tech Georgia Auburn Bowling Green Louisiana Tech Middle Tennessee State we had a pretty good schedule and at the time like again it didn't really seem that big of a deal but when I go back and look at the list the list that of the top 50 oh yeah 
like Drew Brees, number three. Um, you know, I was number one in Florida, beat out Doug Johnson at Florida and Chris Winkie at Florida State. And then the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, finished 44th that year in total offense at Michigan. So to be on the same list with those guys um, didn't really mean much at the time because you're just young and not really thinking it. But as I look back and see all these great names, Michael Vick on that list and a lot of great quarterbacks, uh, Chad Pennington and Drew Brees. And it's an honor to be part of that list and, and be associated in, in with some, some great quarterbacks and probably the greatest of all time in Tom Brady. Well, and another name that's on this list, Doug Johnson from Florida. And you competed against him in that game in 1999. Another quote, Vic, that I really, I just loved it when I saw this. I was doing some research. This is from the Orlando Sentinel. I think it might be a photo caption. I wasn't intimidated by them one bit. And that's speaking of the Florida Gators or being at the swamp. Take me through that day. I mean, do you have jitters when you're getting ready for a game like that? Or are you just... Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. I, I, the, the week before, we had played Purdue. And they beat me up pretty good. And I remember I couldn't bend my legs until midweek. My thighs were so bruised. My jaw was felt like it was up in my ear. I had to warm up my jaw every morning just to be able to talk. And... Then I said, great, now I'm playing the Gators this week. (laughs) (laughs) No relief. (laughs) I I remember sitting in my locker before the game. I was well prepared and confident, but the jitters were so bad, the stomach butterflies, that I just remember sitting in my locker after warm-ups, after everything, and just praying like you wouldn't believe, asking God to just protect me and help me this game. And I remember just praying, praying, praying all, all the way up until I went out on the field. But when I got out there on the field in the swamp, it's so electrifying and it's so loud that it's almost like you're on some kind of a drug because your adrenaline comes up so high. And I had one of my best games of my career. I think I threw 36 completions of 55 attempts, had several drops in that game. But I threw for 379 and, and three touchdowns. We ended up losing. But I had a great game, and, and, I, and I attribute that to the crowd because the crowd, it sounds like ah, you know, it's so loud that you almost are like a machine out there. And I wasn't expecting that. When the adrenaline kicked in out there, the butterflies went away, and I had uh, one of my greatest games um, against those Florida Gators. Now, do you and like the opposing quarterback, whether it's Breeze or Doug Johnson or or Peyton, are you guys having a post-game moment? Are you helmet-to-helmet saying, hey, man, good game? Absolutely. I was able to shake hands with Peyton after that game, and Drew Brees was actually uh, my favorite because Drew Brees came up to me, and we shook hands, and he said, you're a great quarterback. And I said, well, so are you. And that was it. And he told me I was a great quarterback and went on to be one of the one of the all-time greats. And Purdue, actually, they were interested in you. I think you were, like you said, yes. you were really looking at Florida State for a while there, but Purdue did show some interest. Purdue I think... came down to Miami High and watched me, their coaching staff. Two coaches came down and watched me practice one day. And they sent me a letter about a week later that said, Vic, we think you could throw the ball as, as well as anybody we've seen but we think you're too small. We don't think you can take the pounding of the college football beatings that the quarterbacks take. And they didn't offer me a scholarship, but they did send me a letter. They were hot on me for a while. They came down and uh, visited with me in in Miami, but they told me I was too small. It wasn't my height. It was my weight. I mean, 
Drew Brees is always known as a small quarterback, but he was 225 pounds, and I was 175 pounds. In high school, probably 169, 170. I was really skinny, and I ended up signing with the Gamecocks, and the rest is history. I think Drew Brees had signed the year before me. I don't think he came out the same year I did. I could be wrong, but in the event that I'm wrong and they did sign Drew Brees in lieu of me, I think they made the right decision. <laughs> well, that is, I mean, something else, though, that, that he said, hey, I think you're a great quarterback, and I've always respected Brees. Everybody's got their favorite NFL quarterbacks. He's never been my favorite, but I just always respect the guy. Just a good guy, and, you know, when I, when I nothing against anybody else. I'm not saying that. I shook hands with Peyton. He said, good game. But when Drew Brees looked me in the eye, shook my hand, and was very respectful of me. He said, you're a great quarterback. I said, so are you. And we shook hands. And then, true story, we, we mingled around the field again, you know, like everybody does. And then we ran smack into each other again, and we shook hands a second time. He said, you're a great quarterback. We laughed, and I said, so are you. And we shook hands again. So we had we, we actually shook hands twice after that game because we really just ran back smack into each other after the crowd of people come on the field and everybody's kind of mingling around. So that's a great story and and I always cherish that. But I always pulled for Breeze. Even before that, I, I looked up to him. Like you said, he's always been a, a class act and a, a great quarterback. And um, I'm very happy that his career turned out the way it did. And he ended up winning the Super Bowl because he he well, well deserved a Super Bowl because he was one of the hardest working and toughest quarterbacks both physically and mentally, that, that ever played the game. Absolutely. Vic, one thing I just wanted to speak about with these big-time opponents, you guys are going in, you kind of have an interesting perspective as feeling like we know we can hang with these guys. We're not going to be favored in any of these games, so we're not supposed to win, but we know we can hang with them. And then you nearly pull off some upsets. The Auburn game, I think a lot of people forget that you're holding a, a slim lead. It's a pretty defensive game, I guess. What was it, six to three? No, it was um, ten to seven. It was ten to seven. Our lead most of the game, and we dominated on offense. I think I threw three hundred, close to four hundred yards in that one. We just couldn't get the ball in the end zone, but we moved the ball from twenty to twenty the whole game. We we managed the clock. We controlled the time of possession. I had another great game there. Auburn's at the time away locker room were the worst away locker rooms in all the schools I've ever played against. It was very tiny. They had no air condition. You were in a full-blown sweat. Your jersey was soaking wet by the time you even went out to warm up. And I'm pretty sure they did it intentionally. Now, they re re revamped everything since then. But back then, they had a very, very tiny locker room. We got 50-some-odd guys that are huge coming into this locker room and no air condition you there's no room to move you're up on top of each other tiny little lockers their away locker rooms were the worst and i think they did it intentionally um which is smart in my opinion if you're going to take advantage of everything you can so um, that's that's really unacceptable <laughs> i mean you mo most of these places have nice uh you know they're, they're not the, they're not the home locker rooms that's a beautiful in most schools including south carolina's I've never been in South Carolina's away locker room, but I can definitely say that Auburn's was the worst in the SEC for sure because uh, the, it was just pitiful. We, we were we were winning that game 10 to seven up until the last couple of minutes of the fourth, and they scored two touchdowns or one touchdown, I forget, and ended up beating us. And the next year, 2000, Georgia Tech, same way. Final two minutes, we're up in that game, and they they ended up beating us. But later that season, we ended up beating Alabama on their homecoming. I didn't play that game, but uh, Ryan Schneider came in as my when I got hurt, 
Um, but I was still very much involved in that game and, and signaling to Snyder and helping Snyder and Ryan Snyder turned out to be one of UCF's greatest quarterbacks. and still a good friend of mine today. He's coaching down there in Cocoa Beach um, High School, and he's doing a tremendous job. But, yeah, I mean, having lived up here in Panhandle, Florida, and with all the Alabama fans, they can roll tight all they want, but I'm always able to say to the day I die that I was on the team that beat Alabama on their homecoming. So I'm always pulling for Alabama because the, the, the better they do, the, the better that legacy ever becomes. Um, to be able to say that we beat Alabama on their turf, at home, on their homecoming is something I'll never forget. Yeah, I mean, and you can never take that away from anybody, uh, whether it's the Nick Saban era, which very few teams, non-conference teams have had those moments. But anytime you beat Alabama at Bryant-Denny Stadium, Vic, what is it like when you get back on the bus versus the games where you almost pulled off the upset? I was going to ask about how guys treat each other when you lost a, a, a real close one, is it quiet? Is anybody getting on to anybody? Is anybody saying, hey, man, you should have made that play? Or is it? The Georgia game, we lost 24 to 23, which they nicknamed the burglary between the hedges. All right. We're at Georgia. I think they were ranked number nine at the time. And I throw a touchdown pass to my good friend who recently passed away a couple of years ago, fullback Paige Sessoms. And we throw the touchdown pass with five minutes left to tie it 24 to 24. But our extra point hits the upright. Okay, so it remains 24 to 23. They get the ball back. We stop them. We get the ball back with under a minute down one point, And we drive them all the way down to Georgia's 19, where we're now in field goal range. But because of the missed extra point, because we weren't sure of the kicker at the time, who was young, I think he was a sophomore only, we call a fade in the end zone. Say, all right, we're going to try a fade to Kenny Clark. And if we get it, we get it. Don't throw a pick. If we get it, we get it. If we don't, we'll come back and kick the field goal. At least try the fade once because our offense was the strong point of the game and, and we were rolling. So I throw the fade in the back of the end zone and we get called for offensive pass interference. Now, the ball ends up being out of bounds. The players go up for the ball in, in the end zone, but outside out of bounds so it was the infraction that it that occurred should not have been any defensive or offensive pass interference it should have been a no call but they called offensive pass interference on us and backed us up 15 yards well on the next play i throw a 15 yard out to Tavarius davis back down to the 19 and they called us for not having enough men on the line of scrimmage and the film clearly shows that there may be a, a centimeter of the toe of the foot of the guy that they called it on, but he was clearly on the line of scrimmage, but that backed us up another 10 yards, put us out of field goal range and we lost the game. So that was now nicknamed entitled that game, the burglary between the hedges, because in Georgia you're playing between the hedges. So that game, that game was tough. We weren't mad at the kicker. We were, because we, we were all teammates. We're all brothers. There's a lot of things that can happen during a game that could change the outcome in the first quarter, the second quarter. If I'd have done that, if I'd have done this, the kicker would have done that if the receiver wouldn't drop that if the quarterback didn't overthrow that and there's a lot of things like that that happen throughout a game that can change the outcome but in this particular game is what stands in my mind because the refs they, they took the game from us they called two bogus penalties and i remember when i was a game talk coach reeves always told me now you know we're going to play a, an sec school we're on the road we're gonna have to beat them and the refs so the SEC officiating was always known to have a little home field advantage, 
even when I was in the SEC. So when I was at UCF as an independent playing against an SEC school, I looked back and said, sure enough, those sons, sons of guns, they, they called two bogus penalties at the end of the game. And even in the referee, uh, the coaches meetings later that, the next season, when they all got together, they admitted to blowing the calls. And one of them, I think, even admitted to our coach that there was some home cooking going on there. So that's why they called it the burglary between the hedges, which we should have won that game and, and, and upset number number nine ranked Georgia at their home field. Well, yeah, no doubt some of that home cooking was going on back then pre, well, not quite pre-internet, but, you know, pre-Twitter and, and social media, who knows. But, yeah, back-to-back, ticky-tack stuff, uh, you, we can kind of put it together here, what's going on. Absolutely. It is what it is. There's not much you can do about it now. <laughs> Now, one quote that I think you'll appreciate, uh, this is another quote that I pulled from the Orlando Sentinel after the game. This is from Georgia coach Jim Donnan. There's a lot of teams in our league that would like to have that Central Florida offense. And I would like to think he's speaking specifically about you and your key playmakers. Well, we had a lot of talent on that team, and especially at the at the wide receiver position. But I, I attribute that to Coach Kruzak because we had a professional offense. Like I mentioned earlier, we were required to audible at the line of scrimmage. He taught us so well, and I knew this from our first meeting with him, that this guy was going to teach me quarterback in a way that I had never been taught before. We were required to change the play at the line of scrimmage. If he called the play and we came up there, and they were in a defense that was going to stop that play. We better check out of that immediately. It was very similar to a way that Peyton Manning played the game where he always Omaha this and changing the play that. Peyton would change that play 17 times at the line of scrimmage because the defense was always doing different moves and they're trying to audible up based off his audible, you know, so they were trying to change the play the defense based off Peyton's audible. So Coach Cruz really instilled our offense and taught us how to play the game of football in a professional way and what to look for and what to know pre-snap of the football so that when the snap of the ball occurred, they would drop into whatever coverage. But we knew what they were going to drop into based off indicators that he would pick out during the week. He would say, look, a lot of times they show cover two and they end up in cover two. But every time that they show cover two and drop to a man-to-man or drop to a three, it's 42 that gives it away. Look at it. Every time they're in two and they stay in two, He's lined up here. Every time they're in two and they switch to cover three, he's lined up a half a yard to the right. Every time they're in two and they switch to man-to-man, he's lined a half a card to the left or a half, half a yard forward. It's very small things. So we're able to come up to the line of scrimmage and just look at one guy and know what they were going to do pre-snap. He was very, very good at that. And he started watching the film on the plane home of the following team or right when he got home because we didn't have tablets and, and iPads and, and those types of things. And everything was VHS back then. But as soon as he got off the plane, he wasn't celebrating or he wasn't worried about the, the game we just played. He was already scheming for the next game. So that quote by Jim Donnan is, you know, I appreciate very much. I attribute that to uh, Coach Gruzak preparing our offense. He's a uh, well-respected offensive mind, like you said. Was he a guy that uh, if it's fourth and a half a yard, fourth and inches, would he call for a sneak or did, you, did he ever let you go up there and call a fullback dive or something like that? He liked to run me. He knew I could run. We ran the option quite a bit, and um, he'd call quarterback draws. But, yeah, he, I, he called plenty quarterback sneaks in my day. And um, 
And I remember I go back now and, and I forget a lot of the plays during the games. And I'm just amazed at some of the things that we did because we were only division one at that time in 1999, I think four or five seasons. UCF was one double A, I think during the early Culpepper years or right when Culpepper came is when they moved to D1. And they're not affiliated with a conference. It's an independent school. Did you pause at all, you know, when you were thinking about, when you're considering transferring to UCF that, okay, you know, if we win seven or eight games, we're, or we're not going to compete for a conference championship. Did that, was that a... No, I always looked at it because I grew up a Notre Dame fan. My dad, my dad's a Notre Dame grad. So I would, even in Miami, I grew up diehard Notre Dame who has always been independent. So to me, I was, I was in the same league as Notre Dame in my mind, but not to have a conference game and never really even crossed my mind. No. And back then it wasn't like you just win six games and you automatically get a bowl bid. Right. There, was, there weren't as many bowl games as there are now. That's for sure. The 2000 season, you guys go seven and four, but do not get a bowl invitation. That season, I know you, it comes with high expectations, and you know your goal is to to get the Golden Knights to AP top 25, and you got another tough schedule. Take me through, I guess, your thought process. You're coming off that that 99 year. There's a lot of attention on Vic Penn. You got to be pretty proud of yourself and the the coaching staffs behind you. How was it with just those high expectations? and staring down that new schedule? Well, we opened up at Georgia Tech, and we started off really well in that game, and we played really well in that game. We lost it at the end. Um, there's a couple things in that happened in that game that um, if things would have went one way or the other, you know, the way the ball bounces. But I'll, I'll explain it like this. When you go out against the Florida Gators in the second game of the season, the year before I opened up with a touchdown pass on the first drive against Purdue, and I set the bar really high. And... When you set the bar really highly like that, you're expected to play at that level every week. And if you fall short of the bar that you set, it's kind of a letdown. Even though you may have played well, you didn't play as well as you did before. So the pressure is really, really tough being in the quarterback position. I think it's one of the hardest positions to play in sports, especially at that high of a level. But the 2000 season started off, we we should have beat Georgia Tech. We were the better team. We lost at the end. George Gotze, who I became friends with later on, was the quarterback at Georgia Tech, and he threw two late touchdown passes, and he ended up becoming the offensive coordinator at UCF when George O'Leary was their head coach later on. Um, and he and I became friends because I was the president of the Letterman's Club, and we associated quite a bit together. We lost that Georgia Tech game, and I ended up getting hurt a, couple, a few more games after that, a couple more games after that, and Ryan Snyder came in and was playing really well. He ended up becoming one of UCF's all-time leading passers. He played four straight seasons there. And we ended up beating Alabama later on in that year. Um, Alabama, Coach DuBose was their head coach, as you mentioned. It wasn't a Nick Saban, you know, powerhouse, but they were, I think, six and five that year. But they were beating us that whole game in the first half. I think it was 24 to seven at halftime, Alabama. And they were running the ball down our throats. And then they came out in the second half and started throwing the ball. And nobody understood why, but we didn't care. We picked one for six and, and brought the score closer. They came out, they threw again, we intercepted it again. And we got back into the game and ended up winning. But the Alabama head coach, Mike DuBose, got fired two hours after our, that loss. After we beat them, they fired Coach DuBose two hours after that game. And I'm telling you, Dan, they were running the ball down our throats. We couldn't stop the run to save our lives. They were up 24 to 7, I think, at halftime. 
and they came out throwing and they blew the game and got us back into it. Where Schneider came and led a great drive at the end. We kicked the field goal to beat them, which if you YouTube UCF the kick, YouTube UCF the kick, you'll see that final kick where Javier Berlegi kicks that game-winning field goal. And I'm so glad he did because I never anticipated living up on the uh, living up here on the Panhandle where it's Crimson Tide territory and uh, being in an elevator with somebody and them having an Alabama hat or Roll Tide this and Roll Tide that. And I tell them you can Roll Tide all you want. I don't care what year it was. We beat that Crimson Tide of Alabama, and that's something that uh, can never be taken from us. And you really, I mean, I'm sure Debose was he was on the hot seat, but one game. Central Florida changes the trajectory of Alabama football. You know, if he if he makes it through the year, if Dubose coaches through the rest of the year, maybe they don't hire the next guy and then the next guy, uh, Franchoni, I think it was, and then things just... The coaching staff uh, in Alabama history was altered that game, and uh, we played a part in it. Never really thought of that either. Now, when you got hurt, I was also doing some reading, and it was one of those things where I kind of leaned back and was just... It, made me smile, I guess, because Ryan had some really complimentary things to say about you and really stuck up for you, said Vic's a great quarterback. And I think I actually saw a picture of you guys in the newspaper where it looked like you were probably friends, you know? To this day, I, um, I can call Ryan up and he'll answer my calls and he calls me up and we talk football. And Ryan, as a freshman, he had never played it down. And I was coming into the season in 99, he redshirted. And he would come up before every game and he would bless my football. He would make this like the cross over the football and he'd always bless my football. We were great friends off the field. Of course, you know, we competed against each other, you know, in practice, but off the field, we, we hung out on Friday nights and, and, and he'd come to my apartment and I'd go to his and we'd hang out. We were always good friends. So yes, I always pulled for Ryan and, I watched his career, and to this day, I still say that he was one of the greatest passers that ever played at UCF, and there's been some good ones, you know, but Schneider was, Ryan was was a great, great quarterback, um, and he's doing really well down there at, uh, as the head coach of Cocoa Beach High School. Um, I know that you mentioned on a previous episode and other podcasts that, I'm forgetting the name now, but I'll remember, but you were saying that at each stop, you know, whether you're in Kansas, Garden City, for that one season or South Carolina for that one season. And I know this to be true just from my connection with you, that you've picked up a lot of friends along the way and you don't forget people. When you make a connection, that's that's one of your buds. Is that one thing you can look back on your football career and say, hey, whatever happened, I've got all these rich friendships with these people that we're going to be friends for life? Absolutely. Friends for life. And it, what's really cool you're absolutely right to answer your question. Um, as a quarterback, I've always tried to be the same way to the starting receiver as I was the walk-on guy that never saw the field but was a practice every day, you know, because people are people and and it's about respect. And the thing that I didn't really understand when I was playing and, and making the transfers, but now, especially with like Facebook and, and social media, is that I have a group of brothers at South Carolina, a group of brothers at Miami High, a group of brothers at Southwest, because when you play a, a season with a team, those guys become your family, your brothers. You're going to, quote, unquote, war with these with these guys and and, and, and are battling in game in and game out. So 
when you go a season with this. So now in my older years, I have all these networks of people that you don't really realize at the time. But um, and I always say they always ask me, um, am I a UCF fan or a South Carolina fan? And I always say, well, it depends on who's having a better season. <laughs> but in reality, you have just this network of South Carolina people that I'm close with, a network of UCF people that I'm close with. The amount of people that it, it brought me around into and the experiences that I went through because of it, later in life, really look back. And I'm very thankful for all of that because, like you said, I made a lot of friends. You know, even in Garden City, Kansas, I still talk daily to some of those guys in, in Kansas who went on to do their own lives and, and are other professionals in other areas. And it's a, it's a great network of friends. I'm very thankful for it, which is something I didn't realize as it was happening. Who is somebody, one of your old friends at any of these stops, who was just, who was just the funniest guy? Are there any, anybody that stands out that just had everybody laughing? I always, always got to throw Chris Askew a bone. My friend Chris Askew, he's a fireman down in Orlando. God bless him. I think he has five kids similar to your age. I think they're all six and under, seven and under. So he's just got his hands full down there. He's a paramedic in, in there. But he was our backup long snapper. And his claim to fame was that he actually dressed and was at the Middle Tennessee State game because he dressed for home games, but he didn't dress for away games. But they let him come to the Middle Tennessee State game. And that was the game that I set the rushing record on. And so he's the one that always texts me, uh, you know, the quarterback's getting close. He's at 103, you know. <laughs> <laughs> those years and, and he always listens to the podcasts and he always says hey how come you didn't mention me so uh chris askew is is one of the guys that i always like to mention he was the backup long snapper he's a hell of a long snapper probably deserved more playing time than he actually got but um he's a good friend of mine and uh chris always stands out in my mind that's a good quality whether it's the long snapper the punter i'm sure you talked to the punters um the guys on special teams or walk-ons, you know, and, and didn't just stay in one click of, of guys. No. How about Rico Joseph? How about that guy? Rico Joseph was a safety for us at UCF, and um, he had a big role in, um, you know, in that Georgia game and, and so, in a lot of the games. Um, Rico was a tremendous athlete, and, um, and I still connect with him on Facebook uh, here today, and tremendous asset to UCF, but I'll tell you what, one of the greatest defensive backs of all time was our teammate at, at UCF. His name was Dante Samuel, and he played DB for the New England Patriots and for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he, I think, had more interceptions, and it was all pro uh, many, many years. Uh, should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, here eventually. And one of the one of the greatest greatest defensive ends of all time signed with my recruiting class at South Carolina, John Abraham. If you look up John Abraham, he has more sacks NFL now than Lawrence Taylor and Bruce Smith and, and these guys. Um, I think he had 103 total sacks in his career as an Atlanta Falcon and New York Jet. And um, nine, some disgusting number of Pro Bowls. And uh, Jonathan Abraham was a good friend of mine in South Carolina. I still talk to him today. And I have a play in one of our spring games where... I rolled out or I, I dropped back and he came unblocked and I was able to scramble around him. And I put, I put that up on Facebook a couple of years ago because I came across the spring game tape and I said, here's one of the greatest defensive ends in all time. And I'm telling you, he's got more forced fumbles. He ranks like third in all time sacks or, or something of that nature. 
I mean, I'm ahead of guys like Lawrence Taylor and Bruce Smith and Reggie White and all these guys. And he, he's a Hall of Fame candidate also. He should be in, in, the, in the Hall. Yeah, like uh, you treat those guys the same way as, as you treat the, the walk-on. I was always a holder, so I was always close with special teams. I always was good friends with the kickers and the punters because I was a holder. You know, I held the extra points and field goals. So those guys are, 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 you know, you just look at it from a respect point of view as human being, human being. And, you know, I was thankful to be raised by two great parents and just to be able to make friends with everybody on the team, no matter what their role was or what their position was. You know, it's great to hear that, Vic. And it's not surprising, just my friendship with you um, to hear those things. Uh, Vic, what about, did you get to call many fake plays or did Crusette call any fake field goals, fake punts? Did you get to be a part of, you know, like say you're the holder? Well, uh, funny you mentioned that. The first touchdown I ever scored in college was as a Gamecock against Vanderbilt. They called a fake field goal as, at South Carolina. I was a South Carolina Gamecock and they called a fake field goal from like the five or seven yard line. And I was able to run it in. And what it was is that the coaches noticed an alignment mix-up on Vanderbilt's special teams, extra points, field goals. And they said, look, if we just run the option with Vic as the holder, put the kicker as the running back, as the option guy, all he has to do is read this one guy. If the guy goes to the kicker, Vic runs right in. If the guy comes to Vic, he pitches it to the kicker, and the kicker runs right in. So we called the fake field goal at South Carolina against Vanderbilt, and the, the option guy ran straight to the kicker, so I was able to run it in for a touchdown. And that was the first collegiate touchdown that I ever scored against Vanderbilt as a Gamecock. That's great. I've actually got in my notes here one rushing touchdown, South Carolina, so that's it. What an exciting play. I like, uh, I'm always watching for fake punts. I mean, they're just so exciting when they happen, especially when you're, you know, when they're not on their own 45 and it's, it's just an uh, unusual situation. I was I like the uh, direct snap to the halfback sometimes on a fake punt. Oh yeah, Kruzak at UCF was very good at scripting a first drive, and our first play of the game very often was usually some kind of a a reverse with a pass. We had Tyson Hinshaw was one of our receivers, whose brother Darren Hinshaw is now the was a quarterback before me at UCF, learned from Kruzak, and is now the offensive coordinator at UCF. But Tyson Hinshaw's younger brother was our wide receiver who could throw the football. So we opened up a lot of games with like a you know a, a pitch to the tailback, reverse to the receiver Tyson, who would end throwing up throw throw the ball downfield to a fullback or somebody that was forgotten about. Uh, but we scored on our first drive just about every game because he was so well a coach at scripting a first drive better than anybody I've ever seen because he'd watch how they come out game after game on their first drive. He knew what defenses they were going to be in. And he was able to script the first drive better than anybody I've ever been around. And we scored nine out of ten times on that first drive. And a lot of times he would call a little fake, uh, you know, a fake little play, a reverse pass or something of that nature on the first on the first play of the game. Vic, I know after the it's many times as you threw the ball in the '99 season coming into 2000. I remember you saying that ideally you'd like to be maybe throwing 20 times a game as opposed to 40 or 50, but it just the, the game flow and the opponents and the and just situations we're calling for it. Yeah. Anytime you're playing the quarterback position, you want to, you want to throw as little as possible. Anytime you can hand that ball off to a running back and have him, you know, or multiple running backs to carry the load, take the pressure off. 
it makes it that much easier um, when you're getting down in a game or your running game's not doing so well and you're forced to pass. Defense can really just pin their ears back and, and blitz you and you take a lot more hits and you've got to be on top of your game. But yeah, anytime you can throw the ball about that 20, 25 times a game, that would be ideal for me. But most games, I think I set in 99, the passing attempt record at UCF also. I think it was 455 times. I'm not sure if that record still holds or not, but that's 45 times over 11 games roughly. And it was 455 attempts I had that year, which at the time was a UCF record. I, I forgot to check to see if that one's still still the record. But um, they say, well, that's just attempts. That doesn't mean anything. I said, yeah, well, it does, because in order to get those attempts, you have to be getting first downs. You know, you right. go three and out, three and out. So you have to make completions in order to get more attempts. So... That was one of the records that I left with the UCF was was held for a while. I'm not sure if that got broke or not, but again, I only played 16 total games, 17 maybe total games. I got in at the final game against Virginia Tech, Michael Vick. He didn't play that game. He had a hurt ankle, but Schneider got knocked out at the end of the fourth, and I was able to come in. I got a standing ovation from the the Citrus Bowl crowd. We played at the Citrus Bowl. UCF now has an on-campus stadium, but when I played, we played at the Citrus Bowl downtown Orlando. You know, it was a good way to go out and to be able to to live in Orlando for several years after that and be a part of the Letterman's Club. And when O'Leary came in and really revamped that whole program and, and got that on-campus stadium and watched the quarterbacks year after year, Blake Bortles, Ryan Schneider, McKenzie. And then for the record, the rushing record, which was I thought would never be broken, finally came in and broke it last year. And uh, the rest is history. But, you know, your your legacy really is solidified with the Golden Knights. And like you said, I think the fan base, the people that have been around a long time, they know who you are. And this episode is really for, again, guys our age that may have forgotten some of those games and the games that you were a part of. And, you know, I want them to say, oh, yeah, I remember Vic Penn and to go check out the highlights and then for the young kids that you're only watching stuff going back to maybe 2016, dial it back a little ways. I mean, we didn't have flat screen TVs in the 90s yet, but um, there's some great game action. And if you're a young quarterback, Vic, is you're also really interested in teaching the things that you picked up along the way to younger athletes and helping them be successful. Yep. During COVID, during the lockdown, I, I started virtual QB training and I was able to actually train a few quarterbacks and I trained one specifically out in, in, in Iowa. His father contacted me and I trained him virtually and he would send me, I would tell him, look, I need to see a three-step drop to the left, a three-step drop to the right, a five to the left, a five to the right, a couple of rollouts. And I would have them send me specific videos that I would request and then I would critique them and make them videos of how to do it, I would say, because each quarterback was different. I would say, look, this is what you're doing wrong. You're good on this, but your ball's too low. You got to hold it up higher. You got it too high. You're taking too long of a hit step there, things of that nature. But then what it turned out is that they would send me the game tape, and they have this thing called Huddle now, where you can all all of the games are, are right there at your fingertips. So, but I was really able to help the quarterback very well. He was only in tenth grade. And I trained him for an entire season. And then he went out and became an all-time high school leader in three-pointer basketball after that season. I don't even think he played football the next year, which is smart. He stuck with basketball. But 
it was a it's a very interesting concept, and it was it was about training the mind of the receive of uh, the quarterback. Excuse me, and I was teaching them things that uh, were were taught to me by some great quarterback coaches, and I wanted to give back, and and it really paid off. It it really helped a few quarterbacks, and it was a blessing, and it got me back into the game a little bit, and um, I was able to give back and and train a few quarterbacks. And Vic, as your college career is winding down, you're obviously exploring some options and you compete in the new AF2. Take me through just some of those, you know, some of those seasons, some of the guys that you met or uh, experiences. Well, out of college, I signed a contract with the BC Lions in the Canadian Football League. And Marcus Allen's brother, Damon Allen, was the starting quarterback. They had just won the Grey Cup, which is the Super Bowl for Canadian League. So I played in the CFL. From that, I went to the, the Arena Football League's I played with the Arena 2 League uh, for a couple years and the Arena League for, for a year. I was an Orlando Predator for a year. And I learned from Jay Gruden, who is the younger brother of John Gruden, who's, who's obviously a, a Super Bowl champion coach. And Jay Gruden has, has coached some in the NFL also. And I got to able, was able to learn from him. Also, the Arena game was tremendous, a lot of fun because you're throwing every every down and you got a wide receiver coming full speed in motion towards the line of scrimmage at the snap of the ball and you're throwing six seven eight touchdowns a game and really high scoring games that was a lot of fun it was indoors shorter fields walls on the side of the field where there's no out of bounds so you can't run out of bounds on arena ball you get smacked into the wall but i played a couple seasons there met a lot of great friends and um it was a great experience and got to make an impact on, um, you know, more teammates and maybe the fans that go to, to these games. I went to some Arena League games when I was younger. But if you're a little kid, you get to see these guys up really up close. Oh, yeah. I always always look back, put myself in the shoes of a young kid. And I remember how I was at football games. So anytime I could give a, a wristband or a towel or something that I was allowed to give away, I always made sure I... I gave it all away to the fans and the, ch- the kids that were there at the games because I knew how much it meant to them because I know how much it meant to me when I was their age. And, you know, my younger brother, he's 32 now, but he was 13 when I was, bo- or, excuse me, I was 13 when he was born. So when I was 18, 19, and 20 playing college football at a high level, he was five, six, seven years old. So I was able to get him down to the fields. And, you know, there's one incident, uh, not incident, but one uh, memory where, I got him down in the field and he's over there and all the cheerleaders are, of, uh, I think it was the Gators. He's, you know, so now that he's 32 years old, you've met Joe, you know, Joe. So, Oh yeah. Great guy. I always say, Hey, um, you know, I need, you know, can you, can you shoot me 20 bucks or can you, you know, Hey, I need a favor. Remember that time when I got you on the field with those cheerleaders at the game and he says he got, he got, <laughs> he got there down on his own. But, um, we joke around that now that he's older, but, um, being in that, that close level and, and in the Arena League really was a difference. But uh, I always remember bringing my little brother Joe, who was like five or six at the time. You know, his brother's playing against the Gators. It was just a big, big thing for him, you know, at that young of an age. So when you see Joe, make sure you remind him of that. Absolutely. I, I mean, he really must have thought that you were larger than life. I mean, you're his brother, and he sees you sees you out of uniform. But um, what a special, a special memory there. Joe's great. I love Joe. My little brother, and uh, you know Joe. Yeah, the three of us have gotten to uh, hang out, go to a ball game together, and I've got brothers as well. So when it was me hanging out with the two of you, I really appreciated the bond that you two had. 
it showed me that you as the older brother had put in the time with him to be a positive influence. And uh, yeah, I really liked your connection with your brother because that's important to me as well. Yep, and we got to get back and give it a couple of the Pensacola Walters games when we get a chance. Absolutely. I just I cannot believe it's been as long as it has been. I know. Time flies. It's crazy. We, I say this a lot on the, on the podcast, but I really mean this, Vic. We, we may have to do a part two. I don't know. There's just um, – Sure. I mean, you played against the best of the best. I mean, just to be able to have that moment with Drew Brees and take some of those hits. I mean, my gosh, Marcus Stroud, I think, for Georgia. I mean, that was no walk in the park to um, have him barreling down on you. No doubt. Uh, Marcus <laughs> Stroud, remember Javon Kurse for the, for the Gators, or they nicknamed the Freak, played against a, a lot of great defensive ends, and a lot of, a lot of those guys. Uh, I think Marcus Stroud, there's a picture of me that I actually think was on USA Today, the cover of the sports section USA Today was Marcus Stroud sacking me. Yeah, to play against some of the athletes that I played against, not just at the quarterback position, but all the, all the positions, was a, was a tremendous uh, experience. Well, Vic, I usually ask some questions here at the end that are just oddball questions. Do you have a, a favorite sports movie of all time? Uh, My yeah. favorite sports movie of all time, I think, would have to be the movie Rudy. Again, I grew up a Notre Dame fan, and I just I still get goosebumps and maybe a little tear in my eye when he gets that sack at the end. I was, you know, a diehard Notre Dame fan. My dad, my dad was Notre Dame grad, so I grew up just a diehard Notre Dame fan in the city of Miami, which hated Notre Dame, uh, you know, back in the day. So um, that's probably my, my favorite sports movie. And since we're the same age, do you like Netflix and all the stuff that we can just watch and stream movies, or do you sometimes miss blockbuster video and going to the theater? I know we can still go to the theater, but... Uh, do you miss some of that stuff? Yeah, um, I used to. I used to be pretty um, active in Netflix. I haven't in a, in a few years since COVID. Everything kind of got thrown out of whack, and um, been focusing on you know my business and, and that. So I haven't really hit Netflix that hard. But I was just talking to my dad the other day. We were sitting out there in front of a store, and there was one of those red box machines, you know, where people go up and rent movies, and and how we used to go to Blockbuster Video and. Uh, you know, hope that our favorite movie wasn't rented out yet. <laughs> and, you know, hope that when we did get it, it was rewound at the beginning. That's right. Kids don't really, uh, kids these days, they don't know what it's like to, like you said, go to the video store. And then you see that wall of empty, or just the front boxes, but there's no, <laughs> there's no cassette there. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go check the recent returns and hopefully somebody just returned it. Um, as a kid, were there teams that you liked? I know you liked the Dolphins and Dan Marino, but were there any teams that you liked based solely on their uniforms? Like you just loved the uniforms. Notre Dame. I was diehard Notre Dame. I don't care what they, they would come out in those green jerseys every now and again. I loved it. I would sometimes be brought to tears at like 10 years old if Notre Dame would lose, especially if they lost to the Hurricanes because late 80s, early 90s, Miami Hurricanes had great football then too. And those Notre Dame-Miami games were always huge, especially when I went to school with every Hurricane fan in town or my best friends. Um, but here I am with my Notre Dame shirt, you know, in fifth or sixth grade. And if they would lose, I, would, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't take it. It would ruin my day. Uh, so I was just a, a diehard Notre Dame fan, a diehard Dolphin fan too, uh, but probably more so Notre Dame than than uh, than Miami Dolphins. And what, uh, going back to your high school playing days, and like you said, 
you're in an environment where there's not a, a lot of guys like you and you stand out. How long did it take to win over those locker rooms or all of a sudden you're on the bus and you're cutting up with a couple guys or um, did they? Did well, you when I transferred to Miami High, that was probably the hardest because I was, you know, going to a, a school that was 50% Hispanic, 48% African-American, 2% other. It was me and the Chinese kid. <laughs> other. <laughs> other. There wasn't a white category, but. I, but so it took me it took me a while to 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 earn the respect of those guys, but um, once I did, they're still friends to these days. You know, I still talk to many many of them at at, at both schools at my first school, Southwest High School, which was which was my childhood friends, and then I had to end up playing against them twice at Miami High. I had to go head to head with them. Um, we won both games, but uh, you know, I remember hanging out with them the week before or the week during the game and saying, look, I got to play you, you know, tomorrow night, you know, my best friend, Donnie March, who was a defensive end for Southwest high school. And I had to play against them. They played us tough. We ended up winning 14 to seven. We were blowing everybody out and they played us tough, but he, he sacked me that game. He pushed me out of bounds, but it, it was a yard behind the line of scrimmage. Um, I was, I was rolling out right. And everybody was, I should have thrown it away, but, Donnie came and he kind of pushed me a little as I stepped out of bounds and it was a one yard behind the line of scrimmage. So he actually sacked me and he's somebody that was my, been my best friend since, you know, nine, 10 years old, being the quarterback and being a leader, you're respectful and, you know, and, and just being, just being the way that I was raised and person that I am and thankful to, to you know, my parents and, and my, and, you know, in my relationship and with God and, and my spiritual life, it wasn't too hard for me to, Earn the respect. Plus, I could throw the ball like Dan. Old Dan. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to meet Marino? I know he's not the easiest guy to to get to, but any. No, I I I, I saw him at a camp that my my dad took me to, and he was there. But he had a mob of people around him, so I never really got up there to meet him. But I did stand pretty close to him and watched him, and he was definitely my uh, childhood quarterback hero. And I emulated every, everything that he did to include that quick release, which is what really got me the scholarship. Vic, was there, if you had to play on the other side of the ball, if you had to play a defensive position, is there one that you, maybe it just wouldn't work size-wise, but a position on defense that you would like to play? I would have played free safety. I probably would have been a good corner, but these guys are so tremendously talented. I would have been better at as a free safety to be able to read the quarterback's eyes and anticipate plays and, and and i think i would have made a good free safety if i played defense well uh, all right a couple wacky questions and we'll wrap up here if you could be one of these two animals for just one day and just live their life would you rather be a bird or a fish definitely a bird i think i have a better chance of survival as a bird if i was a fish <laughs> a fish i, I could get in, in any second or it could be used for bait or even if i got off the hook and fell through the hit the dock and fell into the water i get eaten again so um, <laughs> bird might be my best chance of survival so i would probably choose a bird if you had to participate in a, a food eating contest would you do a hot dog eating contest or or pie i remember the movie i remember the movie stand by me and what happened to him after eating all that pie so i'd probably have to say hot dogs <laughs> well Vic, this has just been awesome 
I mean, if you're on YouTube, Vic, is this right? You just plug in Vic Penn. It's all the highlights, and uh, that, that's and the, the best way to see the highlights in the games is on YouTube, absolutely. And the virtual QB training website is still up. VirtualQBtraining.com. VirtualQBtraining.com. All right. Well, hey, Vic, anything that you'd like to plug? Is there anything that you're jamming to music-wise or – you have you have three kids now, so you can relate to this. Once I became a dad, I stopped being cool. Um, I don't really keep up too much with the uh, with the good good songs of today, um, because when I became a dad, I, I stopped being cool. So my son's 17 now, and uh, so it, it goes through phases, as you'll see. There'll be the especially when you're when not only the music, but the the the, the Nickelodeon shows and the the kids shows that they watch. Um, you know, they go through the Lego phase, then it's the Mighty Machine phase, and then it's, you know, then it turns into the gaming phase, and you'll see how those phases go by. But always remember this, hold your kids as, as often as you can and carrying them as often as you can, because there will come a time where you can't carry them anymore. And so cherish those times. If they want to be let down, I always say hold them as long as you can, because at some point they're going to be too big to hold, and they're they're going to walk the rest of their lives and you won't be able to hold them anymore. So hold those kids as much as you can. That's some great advice, Vic. And it reminds me of when you and I, when our, our paths crossed and I was still about say six or seven, maybe eight years away from my first boy. But I knew deep down that I wanted to be a dad and I loved just hearing you talk about your little boy at that time. Um, yes. Which he would have been, Somewhere between five, six, seven. But yeah, he was five or six, I think, when you and I first met. He's seventeen now, so that's it, it goes by fast. And I know the cliche is they grow up fast, but boy, do they grow up fast! Things like yesterday, uh, he was just born, and man, he's about to be a senior in high school. He is a senior in high school. And uh, guys, especially listening, a big part of this podcast is I want men to to be men, and there's there's different ways. It's not all. I mean, masculinity is sometimes you can look at it one-dimensionally, but a lot of that is if you're a dad, be a dad. If you can't be there every day for your kids for certain situations, do the best you can because, uh, Vic, going back to the very start of this episode, you said that your dad's involvement in your life, spending time with you and your brothers, no was doubt. probably a big, a big turning point for you. It's like if you take him out of the picture completely, during those years i wouldn't be the person that i am today without my dad to this day he's still you know he's 76 years old i've worked with him as a business partner too for the last 15 16 years but to this day if there's an issue if i need something it's dad i'm calling dad he's been my my guy so i admire what you just said there and and, and it's right he was always been my dad he's always been there and i try to be the same way to my son great stuff vic well i love you brother love you too thanks, dan thanks for coming on the show Okay. Well, guys, thanks for listening today. And remember, if you're getting that update on your laptop and you've been clicking you've been clicking X on it and it says to update this or that or your malware software, it's time to run that thing. Take the three or four minutes to just deal with it and, uh, and <laughs> save yourself the headache. And remember, if you're looking to improve your game or you just want to go back and check out some of the great quarterbacks of the past quarter century do yourself a favor and check out some of those old highlights all right guys that's been it for this episode of dan time you have a great week go out there and make a difference in somebody's life thanks dan. Th thank you vic
Hey, if you like that episode and you're really enjoying the show, please take a minute to leave a five-star rating for the Dan Time Podcast. I'd really appreciate if you download and subscribe. And to keep up with Dan Time throughout the week, you can follow any one of our social media pages. There's at Dan Time Pod on Twitter slash X, Dan Time Pod on Instagram, and the Dan Time Podcast also has a Facebook page. Check us out on YouTube. That's where you can find all the Friday Challenge videos in every episode. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week.